Good morning. Today's reading is from uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Um, It's on page 1014 in your pew Bible. The birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, and that there will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Thank you, J.D. Would you all bow your heads with me? Dear Lord, we thank you for this time of year. Uh, Lord, to reflect on your coming into this world and to reflect on that incredibly profound mystery. And Lord... Just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, Lord, that uh, for those of us who perhaps uh, are new, those of us who perhaps are considering Christianity for the first time, Lord, I pray that you would uh, perhaps reveal yourself to us in a way that you never have before. God, those of us who have been uh, professing Christians for many years, Lord, I pray that this holiday season would not become routine, uh, that the story of Christmas would not become Uh, just a tradition, but that it would uh, become new to us even this Christmas, Lord, that your peace would wash over us in a new way, uh, that your joy would fill us in an unexpected way, and that that would take place as we put our hope and our faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Laura and I are excited. We have the opportunity this uh, evening to go into the city. Uh, and to go around New York and see the lights and all of that, uh, being in this area. See, those of you, if you, if you grew up in this area, you don't realize, maybe you take for granted how fortunate it is to, to be near the city. This is the kind of thing that people from Wyoming take vacations for, to come out here and see. And we can just go down there this evening, and we're really excited about that, going around, seeing the trees, seeing the lights, and all of that. And it's been a little while since we, we've done it. We did it a number of years ago, three or four years ago, I guess, uh, when we when we first uh, moved here, a group of us went, actually some of you came with us on a bus tour into the city to see the lights. And as we were, go- as we were going into the city, we were going through the, the George Washington, uh, wait, not the George Washington Tunnel. I'm getting myself confused. We're going through the tunnel. You know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and uh, the Lincoln Tunnel. Thank you. Right. I get my presidents confused from time to time. And we were getting to go through the tunnel. And we noticed that there was a billboard on the side of the road, and it was a billboard that had been put up by a group of atheists. 
And the billboard had a picture of the Christmas nativity scene. Um, But then it had written over it these words. It said, you know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. You know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. Now, you might think, as a pastor, you might think, well, that was the moment when I told the bus driver to pull over to the side of the road, you know, block the traffic on the Lincoln Tunnel, and go out and do a little divinely sanctioned vandalism, right? Like, this is the one where you read in the New York Times where the pastor burns down the, the, the sign or something like that. But that actually wasn't my first reaction. My first reaction was when I looked at the billboard, I thought, well, actually, they're right. You know it's a myth. And I thought, you know, actually, they're, they're actually right. Now, that may sound surprising to you to hear a pastor saying that, that the Christmas story is a myth. But here's the thing. We need to understand what a myth is. You see, most people's sort of popular conception of a myth is just, well, it's just something that isn't true. But actually, if you Google what a myth is, uh, and I did this just to make sure, uh, that's actually not the first definition that comes up. And if you're wondering what dictionary, I checked to figure out what dictionary they use. Uh, Google uses the Oxford Dictionary, which is the most respected, most reputable historically in terms of dictionaries. And uh, that's not the first definition. Let me read to you what the first definition that comes up, if I have it here. Uh, Actually, I left it down here. Some of you with Google have probably already pulled it up. Here's what it says. Oh, that's the wrong page. I really might count on you to pull it up for me. Wow. See, this is, see I, this is actually planned. Yeah, thank you. This is exactly right. Here's what it says. A myth is a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining some natural or social phenomenon and typically involving supernatural beings or events. That's actually the, the primary definition of a myth. Thank you. A little audience participation here. And by that definition, this is very much a, a myth. It, it, is a, it is a story of origins. It is the story that brought to birth the entire Christian tradition. Uh, it is a story that incorporates uh, supernatural beings. We have angels uh, singing up here on stage. We have angels surrounding the nativity scene. So uh, in that sense, it's very much, it's very much uh, a myth. And so I, I first read this, I say, you know it's a myth. I'm like, okay, that's, that's right. Now, of course, the problem uh, is the conclusion. The conclusion is, uh, it, okay, uh, you know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. Now, what's ironic about that is that the whole reason why our world has myths, the whole reason why human cultures of various kinds have myths is precisely because reason isn't enough. That's the entire reason why you find throughout our world that there are myths, that there are these extraordinary stories, there are these incredible uh, uh, tales of of supernatural occurrences. and, 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 And the reason why you have this is because there is this longing in the human heart for something that goes beyond the mere natural. There is this longing in each and every one of us for something that goes beyond the mere 
reasonable, beyond the mere natural. There's this longing for something that goes beyond what you can sort of categorize and quantify in an Excel spreadsheet. Let me just give you an example of how this is clear. Uh, well, just in the example of, of, of love. You know, I don't know how many of you ladies, single ladies here today, how would you like it if the, if the man who proposed to you proposed to you like this? He said, honey, I'd really like to marry you because it's the rational thing to do. I think we should get married because it just seems very reasonable. I've done some studies and uh, I've got an Excel spreadsheet and I should show you why we should get married. I know that, there, that in the context of love, there's something that, that we long for that you can't explain. There's something mysterious about it. There's something that, that goes beyond mere, mere rationality. Now, I mean, hopefully you don't just expense with reason altogether. Hopefully when you get married, you do consult reason. That's why whenever I perform a, a wedding for a couple, I always try to make sure we have some sort of premarital counseling. Right? That's an opportunity to consult reason. At least that's one of the reasons that you do it. So that it's not simply a matter of something mysterious. But, but we know that we, we don't just want it simply out of reason. There's, there's something mysterious. There's something inexplicable. There's something supernatural. Something that goes beyond what mere reason can give us. And that that's precisely the reason why there is this universal longing for stories and myths and, and, and whatnot. And that we need this. That we need this for, uh, for our, 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 own, uh, our own development, even our own spiritual development, is this, is this ability to look at stories and myths and things that point to something other than the mere natural world. And in fact, let's see if I have, I've left all my quotes down here. C.S. Lewis has, an, I think, a very interesting observation when he talks about myths. And he even says that myths are things that can sustain you and can give you a sense of, of spiritual growth, even if you don't see them to be true. And this is interesting that C.S. Lewis actually says this. He says, a man who disbelieved the Christian story as fact, but continually fed on it as myth, would perhaps be more spiritually alive than one who assented and did not think much about it. He's saying that doctrinal orthodoxy is not enough. I mean, even if you just assent to the historicity of the Christian story, which is a part of Christian orthodoxy, you say you might even assent to that, but if you don't really even think about it or reflect on it, somebody who doesn't really even believe on it, but, but gets involved in it and thinks on it and reflects on it and meditates on it, they might actually have a sense of spiritual growth that you don't even have. That there's something about the power of myth, the power of this looking and reflecting and meditating on something that points us away from the mere rational world that allows us to grow and allows us to be more fully human. But of course, this is also one of the reasons why uh, we shouldn't be surprised uh, when we look around uh, the world and we look at different cultures and we actually find myths that have similar parallels with, with Christianity. That there are parallels here and there, and that's not something that should surprise us. That's something we should expect to see. That if this is something that is a longing within the human heart, that it's going to be something that you're going to find in various different cultures. So when you see uh, stories here or there that parallel or have similarities 
with uh, Christianity. That's not something that should surprise you or alarm you. That's something that is to be expected because we all have this, this longing for something other than what is merely rational, what is merely reasonable. But of course, what is so unique about the Christian myth is that what we find, and it comes through very strongly, precisely in this passage that we're looking at today, is that it isn't that it isn't a myth. It's that it's more than a myth. That what we find is what is so unique about Christianity. When you look at all the different myths within world religions, what you really find, what is so unique about Christianity is the degree to which it says, actually, this myth actually happened. Or as C.S. Lewis has famously put it, the myth that became fact. It is the myth that has become fact. And that's what you find. You find this incredible truth just leaping off the page in these verses here in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. You see, verses 8 through 14 really, in a sense, sound very mythical. Uh, And in fact, verses 8 through 14, in a sense, really... In that sense, aren't all that uh, you know? Aren't all that unique? I mean, again, you know, you, you find other myths throughout history with divine beings and gods coming down and angels and all this kind of stuff. That in and of itself isn't actually all that unique. And actually, verses one through uh, seven aren't that unique either. Verses one through seven are, are are really just well, it's kind of a rather boring historical narrative about. Caesar Augustus, and you know, this is you know, uh, this is the kind of thing that happened in the Roman Empire. The the emperor would would call for a census to you know, basically, it was all about taxation. They needed to know everybody was so that they could tax them. That's what this was about. And so the the, the emperor would call for a census, and, and this story of a of a man who had to leave his you know, he'd he'd left his uh, city of origin, and he'd moved somewhere else, and so now he needs to come back to his city of origin for the census. I mean, this is the stuff of history. That's just normal, boring, ordinary history. There's, there's nothing extraordinary about verses 1 through 7, so there's nothing extraordinary about verses 1 through 7. It's just ordinary history. There's nothing really all that exceptionally extraordinary about verses 8 through 14 about a divine God and angels and all this kind of stuff, but what is unbelievably extraordinary is that Luke is saying that verses 1 through 7 and 8 through 14 are talking about the same thing. He's saying that this myth has become become fact. And he wants us to see this, that this is historical. You notice, again, the beginning of chapter 2, this is where it doesn't sound like a myth. It's not like he starts chapter 2, verse 1, with uh, once upon a time. Or long ago. In a galaxy far, far away. He doesn't start off with that sort of mythical language. He he says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. He talks about a historical event. And actually, of course, there are all kinds of debates. There's all kinds of confusion about what census that he's talking about and and, how, how all of that works out. But the, the fact that there is the debate is kind of missing the forest for the trees. The fact that there's a historical debate about, well, what census and all that is, is, is kind of misses the whole point that he's talking about something historical. And he wants us to see that. 
Of course, that's really what the whole gospel is about. If you go to the beginning of the gospel of Luke, once again, you find that the entire gospel is set this way. It's not set up as just a myth. It has, it has mythological language in it. It has all of that in it. But he's not telling us that this is simply a myth. The beginning of gospel of Luke, once again, doesn't start off once upon a time in a galaxy uh, far, far away or whatever. What does he do in the very beginning of the gospel of Luke? He says, I have set out to take an orderly account. I have gone out, I have done my research, I have consulted the sources, I have, I have talked with eyewitnesses, I have tried to pull together an orderly account of what has taken place. He wants us to know that, yes, this is a myth, but this is a myth that has become fact. Now, look, of course, you could, anybody could reasonably raise that question, well, how do I know that, that Luke is trustworthy and all of that? And, and that's a reasonable question. I'm, I'm not going to go into that today. If that's a question that you have, I would be more than happy to present you with some sources uh, that can help you to understand how sound historically the Gospels really are. But for our purposes today, what we need to see is that Luke wants us to understand that this, it's not that this isn't a myth. Oh, it certainly is a myth. But it is the myth that has become fact And what that means, that has profound implications because if the myth has become fact, then what that means is that this myth is not then relative. You see, it becomes universal. Once it becomes fact, it becomes not a story for a particular culture or a particular person. It becomes a story for everyone. You see, if it's just a myth, then it's just a matter of subjective opinion. You know, maybe you get spiritual nourishment out of meditating and reflecting on the Christ story. Uh, maybe I get spiritual nourishment out of reflecting on the life of Luke Skywalker or, uh, or Frodo or Bilbo Baggins. You know, I mean, whatever it is, if it's just a matter of subjective experience, then, then sure, it's relative. You meditate, you reflect on whatever it is. But you see, when the myth becomes fact, then it's no longer something that's relative. This is making a claim on history. This is making a claim on everyone. It's saying this is a universal story. And Luke communicates that in a number of different ways, aside from what I've already shared. We notice, actually, you go to the the first chapter of Luke, and he couches the story of Zechariah, for example. He couches it within the context of the history of the people of Israel. In other words, he talks about King Herod. He says in the time of King Herod, and then he talks about Zechariah. And that's a way of saying this is the story of the Jewish people. By by couching it within the context of King Herod, he's saying this is a story of the Jewish people. But then when you come to chapter 2 and he starts to talk about Jesus, well, now he doesn't couch it simply within the context of King Herod. He couches it within the context of the Roman emperor. And the Roman emperor, you see, in that time period, basically was the king. There was no, he wasn't like one of a number of kings. He was by far the most powerful ruler in all the world. And Luke wants to make this clear. He's setting the context of the story of Jesus within the context of the Roman emperor as a way of saying this is a story for the whole world. In fact, the translation in verse 2, and I understand why they did this, but it's a little bit misleading. It says, in, this, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken for the entire Roman world. In the original, it doesn't say Roman. It just says a census was taken for the entire world. <laughs> what Luke is actually saying is, look, with, within their context, this is a way of saying, this is for everybody. This is for the whole world. This is not a particular story. This is universal. Universal. 
Another way of, of saying that, another thing that, he's, that emerges from that then is what he's saying is that he's setting up here a, a rivalry between Jesus and anything else in this world that would set itself up as our king. By setting the story of Jesus within the context of the Roman emperor, he's not simply saying this is a universal story for all peoples. He's he's also saying, okay, I'm going to set Jesus side by side with the person who represents the most powerful king in all of the world. And he's saying, I'm going to set them against one another, and then you're going to have to make a decision who is your king. You see what's going on here? Because Luke uses... The language that he uses to describe Jesus in this passage, a lot of it actually is language that was used in that time to talk about the Roman emperor. He refers to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Those are actually phrases that, are, of course, have both an origin in Old Testament, but are also words that were used to talk about the Roman emperor, that it wasn't uncommon for the emperor to be referred to as the Lord and Savior of the people. He talks about uh, how he brings uh, good news of great joy, good tidings of great joy. There are actually writings that talk about uh, Emperor Augustus as a man who brought good tidings of joy to the people. He was the man who brought peace. It talks about Jesus being the Prince of Peace, of course, in other places as well. Uh, But actually, the, the Roman emperor was seen as the Savior who had brought peace. You've probably heard that phrase, Pax Romana. It means the peace of Rome. It's talking about how the emperor came and he brought peace. And so, so Luke, we find this language being used here to talk about Jesus. And he's doing it as setting it up. He's saying, look, this is who you think is the king and the ruler of the world. But I'm actually going to say, you know, you need to ask yourself, you need to ask yourself, who are you really going to submit to as your king? And so this is the question that emerges for us as we take this and and seek to apply this practically to our own lives, then we need to ask ourselves this question. Who is the king, or what is the king, to which I look to find peace and salvation? What is it? What is the king that I'm, that I'm, that I'm looking to? Right? I suppose your, your king could be some sort of political ideology. You could kind of keep it in that realm. Uh, maybe you think that there's a particular political ideology that if, if uh, the world God or our country God, then that would bring salvation, that would make everything right. And Jesus would say, okay, who's your king? What's your king? But I think for many of us, just on a, on a given daily basis, we can make this a little bit more uh, particular. And I would say that in our own lives, there are three kings. There are three kings that often... Uh, vie for our attention. Now, talking about three kings is a very appropriate thing to do when we're talking about Christmas. But these three kings that I'm talking about are not three kings who came to worship Jesus. These are three kings which try to pull our worship away from Jesus. These are three kings not who come to Jesus to find life, but three kings who seek to pull away, pull us away from Jesus in finding life. These are three kings which we seek to orient our lives around. These three kings which we orient are... Sorry, that was stupid. These three kings which we orient our lives around are relationships, resources, and reputation. 
relationships, resources, and reputation. They all start with R. Three kings of Orient, R. I don't know. I don't know what got into me this week. Thank you. Thank you. Relationships, resources, and reputation. First of all, many of us will look to relationships to be our king. Human relationships to be our king, that which we look to to find salvation and peace. Uh, This is something that can easily happen in a marital relationship. And when that happens, it really can cause a lot of problems. When you start looking to your spouse to be the one who's really going to give you peace and salvation. Uh, Let me give you an example. This is, of course, a lesson that my wife learned very early on, that I make a better husband than I do a savior. I mean, I think I'm a pretty good husband, but I'm a pretty lousy savior. So let me just put it this way. I think my wife would tell you that I'm a pretty good husband, but I don't think she would tell you that when we got married, I don't think she would say that I ushered in an era of peace. I don't think she would say that. I don't think she would say that I ushered in Pax Lorana, the peace of Laura. She'd say I'm a good husband, but I I don't think she'd say I'm a very good savior. But see, some of us, we get into a relationship, and and if that's what you're looking to to save you, if that's what you're looking to to find peace, it's going to cause all kinds of problems. You're never going to be satisfied. The expectations are never going to be met. This can happen in a marriage. This can happen in other relationships uh, as well. I actually, I don't really know if this relates. I just think it's kind of a funny story. I had a friend who, in college, he had uh, three male roommates. They're all college students. And they really didn't even know each other very well. And they, he had only been living in this household with uh, this group of guys for like three weeks or something like that. And w- one of his roommates sat him down and said, look, I-, I need to talk with you. And he said, okay, what's wrong? He said, look, I feel like I'm putting more into this relationship than you are. Right? And for guys and college roommates, that's just weird, Right? Okay, see, I don't even know if this relates. But the point is, if you look to a relationship to be your savior, your peace, that thing, it's, it's, it's always going to let you down. We can do this in, in all kinds of relationships. We can do this with our children. Your children can become your savior, that, that everything revolves around them. And so that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways in terms of your interaction. On one hand, you may just be afraid to do anything to make them mad. You don't want to get them mad. So you have no sense of discipline. Or on the other side of it, you're so disciplined, you're so controlling, you're trying to make sure anything that they do wrong, it devastates you. Like any failure that they have devastates you and kills you. And so then now they carry the burden of having to, having to succeed. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to die because they've become your savior. Relationships can easily become our our source of peace, our source of salvation. And, and, and what, what Luke is doing here is setting up Jesus against the Roman emperor saying, okay, okay, what, what is your king? And, and who is rivaling Jesus as your king? Because he alone is the one who can give you peace and salvation. The first king of or- in which, around which we orient our lives is relationships. Secondly is resources. In the movie Spaceballs, <coughs> Lone Star... Lone Star um, is, is stranded on a desert island with Princess Vespa. And he's carrying her luggage for her. And he has this huge, she has this huge, you know, piece of luggage. And, and he's really frustrated. They're trying to find shelter. And, you know, he's really upset because he told her and everybody else 
that was with them to take only what they need to survive. And so he's like, he's like, he's carrying this massive, this massive piece of luggage. Finally, he just drops it on the ground, and he demands to know what's in it. And they open it up, and Princess Vesca, Vespa walks over, and, and it's this hairdryer uh, that's like, you know, five feet long. It's like, it's just this huge hairdryer. And she looks at him, and she says, it's my industrial strength hairdryer, and I can't live without it. You see, that's her emperor. That's what she looks to for salvation. That's that thing that you can't live without. If you can't live without it, that's your Emperor Augustus. That's your, that's your Caesar. That's what you're looking to for salvation. And this is a question which we need to ask ourselves with, with the things that we have. Is there anything in our lives? And we've already talked about a relationship, but here we're talking about things. We're talking about stuff. You know, Christmas is a time where we accumulate a lot of stuff. Which is fine. I'm not against giving presents. I think it's a great idea. But I think it's also a time for us to reflect on the things that we have and even the patterns in which we live and say, okay, is there something here that is actually becoming my savior? Is there something, whether it's a car or a house or food or alcohol or whatever it might be, there could be something that's becoming, it's becoming, it's what you look to for peace and salvation. You have to have it. It's your industrial strength hairdryer, and you can't live without it. See, Luke places Jesus alongside Caesar as a way of saying, okay, who is your king? Who are you looking to for salvation? It can come in the form of relationships. It can come in the form of resources. And it can come in the form of reputation. That ultimately what you're looking to for your peace and your salvation is your own reputation. Here's how you can tell if reputation has become your, your king. Here's how you can tell. You hate getting Christmas letters from your friends. You hate getting Christmas letters from your friends, right? Because you get all these Christmas letters from your friends. You know what I'm talking about. The Christmas letters where uh, basically they just talk about how their entire family has conquered the world for the last year. You know what I'm talking about where there's like a column for each member of the family. And it's like, you know, Jimmy's a freshman in high school. Uh, starting quarterback led them to 76-0 and undefeated. Looks like he's going straight to the NFL. You know, Veronica is pursuing her Ph.D. in environmental astrophysics at Harvard University. Uh, first one to get a Ph.D. in our family under the age of 16. You know, Dad just sold his business to Amazon for $5.5 billion. Mom just had her ninth kid, and three weeks later, she's back to being a model, right? You know what I'm talking about? These, these letters where the family is just conquering the world. And you want more than anything to send out your own world-conquering Christmas letter. Of course, if you have been conquering the world, you wish you could send out a letter for every holiday. See, this is a person who's looking for their peace and their salvation in their reputation. Jesus is saying, you know, who's your king? Luke is saying, who's your king? Is it, is it Caesar? Is it, is it anything else in this world that you look to to find salvation and peace? Or is it Jesus? Because Jesus is the one who can give you peace and salvation. Jesus alone is the true king. You know, the Roman emperor brought Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and it lasted for about 200 years. Most scholars mark the end of Pax Romana as coming with Marcus Aurelius in the year 180. And pretty much after that, it just went downhill. And in 475 or something like that, the final Roman emperor was deposed by a German, German tribe or something like that. 
Right, but so, so, so the peace that, that, that we find here, the Pax Romana, it, it's, it's temporary. It doesn't last. But the king whom Luke wants to point us to is a king who came to a manger, died on a cross, and rose from the grave. His is a kingdom that cannot end. So the question for us is, who are we looking to as our true king? Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for your incredible love, your incredible grace. The central message of the Bible that you are a God who has come for us, that you humbled yourself, you condescended and came down from heaven, born in a manger, crucified on a cross, Lord, that you entered into this world And you bore on your shoulders our sin and our suffering. And Lord, that's not just a beautiful idea, that is reality. God, I pray that you would draw us to you, help us to relativize all of the kings and emperors in our lives that vie for our attention. Lord, that we would look to you alone for salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.